we're talking here. Last Sunday uh, was the last day of the, the General Council, which is our national conference for the Christian Missionary Alliance, which Freshwater is a part of, and they had a Sunday service. But we had a, a funny thing happen. I don't think uh, Pastor Lynn talked about this one. Um, it was uh, during the week, one of the evening sessions, and uh, we were all minding our own business. It was a good service and everything, and we were all sitting up in the balcony, second to last row, um, which is so funny because we get upset when people don't sit up front, but then when we go to something, we sit in the back, right? So we know how that all goes. But we were in the way back, up in the balcony, second level, and um, at the, it was towards the end of the service, and these two police officers started walking. It's, a, it's an auditorium that seats about 10,000 people, and there's two police officers walking the balcony, and they were walking with pace and a determined, you know, way about them, like they were going somewhere. And uh, they're watching them, and, and they start coming down, and then they, they go down this long aisle, and they start coming across, that they're going to make it right in front of our things. The whole time, they kind of are looking our way, and you know, we're not thinking anything about it. And they keep walking closer, and they keep looking right, like, at us. And, and I'm like, I don't, I'm not thinking much. I'm just like, well, what's their deal? Lynn's over here thinking terrorists, something like that. And, uh, and I'm thinking, well, he's bigger. He can protect me, and I'll just, like, get underneath him or something like that. Um, so anyway, they come, and they cross right in front of us, and then they come up the aisle that we're, we're in, and they're looking right at us. Like, and, and they come, and I'm just like, what is going on? And they just come, and then they literally like come right by us to the guy who's in the last row. Like they go right at him, and we're like, what's going on? And they're getting him to move the chair, and they're saying, it's the balloon. It's, we got to get the balloon down. Well, there was a helium balloon up there, and apparently their fire suppression system is so sophisticated, it can read the presence of a helium balloon there, but the problem is it reads it as a ball of gas or a ball of fire. That's how it reads that helium, which is not a good thing for a fire suppression system. So they're over here, try, they're trying to figure it out, and they thought there was a fire. They're trying to find it, and they realize it's a helium balloon. So they're trying to get this thing down, and they're all, like, not tall. Um, but I'm sitting next to tall. And so Lynn and I are like, all right, Lynn, you're going to get it. So he he's gets up, and he gets on the chair, and he's reaching up in the ceiling. At that point, you're high enough in the balcony, right? The ceiling's just, you know, it's right up there. So Lynn's way up there, and he's like, hold on to me. And so I'm holding on to his belt, and the cops grabbing the belt. They're all trying to, like, hold Lynn as he's up here trying to reach this little, he's on his tippy toes trying to get this. And he did actually save the night, so they didn't. Yeah. Yeah, it was amazing. His civic duty. So uh, anyway, it was kind of an exciting moment in, in the services there. It has nothing to do with my message at all, but I thought it was fun to say. Uh, but we're in the book of James, and uh, we're in a passage today that has to do with the rich and the wealthy. And it's a scathing, scathing few verses here, warning against the rich or condemnation to the rich. Now, we talked about the culture of the day and time back then and the strata of social, you know, economic or the social economic strata of the day. So you had the wealthy landowners who were nationally connected to politics and they owned all kinds. I mean, it was crazy how much percentage, like 80% of the land. You had local 
wealthy who owned land but, and were powerful in the local politics but trying to get to the national. And then you had the local merchants who were trying to get out of their thing. And then you had everybody else, the poor. And, and there was those strata and there was all kinds of discrimination stuff going on. Well, in this passage, there's something even worse now. And James comes at them and he says this, Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. Their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He doesn't even resist you. This is a, a pretty intense passage. Very intense. In fact, I would say this is the harshest James is in this whole letter. And it is harsh. You know, God says, and many of us are familiar with, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Has all these warnings about money and wealth and loving it. And, and in the middle of all that warning, you, you have people like Abraham, who he used to start Israel and gave this promise to, and Abraham was incredibly wealthy. You have Job, famous book. A whole book is written about Job, an incredibly wealthy man, like perhaps one of the most wealthiest of his time. You read the stuff that he had and the wealth that he had. It was amazing, and yet God called him a righteous man. David, incredibly wealthy. Solomon, incredibly wealthy. You go into the New Testament church. People were wealthy in the New Testament church. Joseph of Arimathea, Lydia, Philemon. You have all these people that had wealth that God looked at and saw as righteous and godly. You have to keep that in mind as you read this because wealth in and of itself is not evil. Having wealth in and of itself is not evil. It just isn't. It's our hearts. But having said that, wealth, Jesus says, is dangerous. It can be very dangerous. And it has a funny effect on us it's, a, it's such a subjective thing. Who's wealthy and who's not wealthy? How do you determine that? It's such a subjective thing. I, I was reading a website just this past, couple, this past week, and they put these statistics out a couple months ago, saying if you earn $32,400 $32, a year, which they, they say is an entry-level position for a number of jobs, you are in the top 1% wage bracket in the world. Out of 300 billion people who work, you are in the top 1% if you earn 32,400. What's hard about that is what do you do with cost of living, all the bills, everything, I get that. And yet you can't get away from being in the top 1%. The median wealth of an American 
is 49,000. According to this website, Europe was at 11, a little above 11. India has like a seventh of the world population. The median wealth is $608. The median wealth in Africa as a continent is 400, just above 400. Who feels like they're wealthy? I mean, it's so subjective, right? Who feels wealthy? When you look at stats like this, you could go in and parse it out and explain it all out, but at the end of the day, the disparity, the, the amount of wealth we have, you can't argue against the idea that we're wealthy. We're all wealthy. We're rich. Which is sobering when you look at this and say, come now, you rich. Because I think that's us. Now, what's hard is it's a sliding thing. So we look that way and go, well, okay, we're rich. But then you look at the average income, not the median, but the average income, which means you can pull in all the highest wage earners that are making, what, $200, $300 million a year? You know, you could pull in your sports stars who make how much? $20 million a year. And so it skews everything. So the average income in America is over $300,000, which most of us are going, we're not that rich. It doesn't feel wealthy now, does it? But it's all relative, subjective. And the problem is we move the line. The tendency of human nature and the warning that I think Christ has is we move the line of what's wealthy and what's not. The average American home is 1,000 square feet bigger than it was in 1970. It's twice as big as it was in 1950, but the average American family is smaller. That's how the line moves. We want more. We build bigger. We get used to that definition of what normal is and what's acceptable. And what's hard about it is it gets difficult. We would never call ourselves greedy because that's such a stark word. Like, I'm not greedy, right? But when you move the line, it's hard to know. But we can see it in other people, especially those who are wealthier than us, <laughs> right? You can see it, oh my goodness, can you believe what, right, it's all clear, but it's way subtle and it's, ray, it's, it's squishy, it's, it's oily, it's hard to get your hands on. And so as we move through this passage today, it, it is a passage where uh, it's going to be hard, it's going to be difficult. James, through God, comes at the rich and he is after them. And as I move through this, I'm, I'm, we're just going to move through this hard, and, and, and I'm just going to assume that God's the one that will convict you. I, I got no agenda, nothing. It's up to you and the Holy Spirit on this thing. And James comes, and he gives an accusation. First accusation. Verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep, howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. So here's the accusations. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. And verse five, I think, works with this too. You've lived 
on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. It's, it's this accusation of self-indulgence, hoarding greed. Woe to the rich. He goes Old Testament prophet on them. Woe to the rich. Weep, howl, for your miseries are coming. They were hoarding their wealth. They were self-indulgent. And he says, it's coming. There's miseries. Your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver corroded, which you know it's bad if gold's corroding because gold doesn't corrode. That's why it's so valuable. So if your gold is corroding, you're in deep weeds. The pile of trash that was their wealth was going to be the evidence on the day of judgment that they spent it all on themselves and not one thing for eternity. Spend it on themselves, save it for themselves. And so he calls them to weep. He calls them because miseries are coming their ways and coming their way and he uses scary words like this pile of riches was going to be evidence for a devastating judgment, a fire that would eat their flesh like fire or judgment that would eat their flesh like fire. It's, It's scary things and he's saying weep and howl at the horror that is coming from God's wrath. Their, their love of wealth had driven them to pervert the way they, they lived their whole life and viewed people. Their wealth was more tangible than the coming judgment. Their decisions about wealth flaunted a disrespect for God and his holiness and his righteousness. They're looking at the wealth saying, this is what I can handle, this is what I can feel, and it feels more solid and more real than any judgment day, moment, where I could possibly be held accountable. Whatever, I'll just spend it on myself. Accusation number one. Accusation number two, understanding he's doing this, bringing these accusations against Christians. You have to keep in mind, he's not writing to people outside the church, he's writing to people in the church. And he says this, he says, behold, in verse four, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. They stole money from the workers. Money they promised and they would steal. Take it away, not pay it. I mean, it's, this isn't difficult. It's straightforward, right? It's not subjective. You promised to pay him, you didn't pay him. And it wasn't just a one-time thing. It, it is cries. It is a multiple, a multiple of multiple. It's how many times. And, and the cries are, are reaching up to heaven, and it's the cries of injustice, and it's the cries of these workers whose families aren't being fed because they're not getting paid. And, and it goes up to not just God. It goes up to the title of the Lord of hosts, which is the high commander of heaven's army, and as if he's saying here, the cries have gone up to God and he is about to declare war on you. The rich. 
they're extreme statements, and God clearly is not messing around. And what does this look like in our day and time? Because this is, this is difficult. How does this play out? When I, when I think about some of the ways this could pay out or play out in our country, it, I start stepping on toes, I think. It gets into areas that are complex, and I get complexity. It gets into politics, and I don't want to get into politics. Uh, it gets into how you view things. I, I, I get all that. I, I, so I just want to make an observation or at least a application. What does this look like? Could this be, perhaps, how illegal immigrants are taken advantage of? Sure, they come here, they make money, there's all kinds of things that happen, but how many stories do we hear of them not being paid or barely being paid anything? And I get illegal and I get sovereignty of nation, they've broken the law, I get all these things, and how do you then run a nation? I, it's complex, but I'm just saying, have we eaten the food from immigrants who've been taken advantage of, illegal immigrants? Have we benefited from the labor? Probably have to say yes. And you could go on and say, well, they get whatever, health insurance, stuff like that. I, I get all that, or health care, not health insurance, but all that. I, I hear the objections, but I'm just saying that does happen in our country. I've heard people say, well, then the cost of labor will go up, it'll affect the food prices, the number of everything, and expensive, and all that. And I go, well, is that necessarily bad if we, as Christians, are saying, wait a minute, this is unjust, and it does affect our own wealth? And we have less because they're actually pulled up and have some more. I just wonder, perhaps, if the cries of the laborers have reached the ears of the Lord. You hear stories about sweatshops in America, China, Indonesia, you know, Thailand, you go where any of these industrial places are, and you can hear these stories. They're here in America just as well. And coming more and more aware as a nation of this, and you see a concerted effort to shut that down, but there's still an element where that stealing is happening. People suffering in what you would almost say are slave-like conditions. And I'm not trying to promote any political ideology. I'm just saying, I'm trying to figure out, is this happening here because this is such a scathing attack that we better sit back and say, is this happening under our watch? And if so, what then? It's dangerous to face the wrath of God, especially when you hear these phrases like, the judgment will eat the flesh off your bones like fire. The third accusation is this, in verse four, or actually five and six, as he talks, he says, you've lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. 
And you see it actually in verse 4 with them stealing their wages. And what, they, what, what I want to key in on is this phrase that he does not resist you. The accusation is he doesn't resist you because you've worked the system. You've rigged the system. The system's in your favor as a wealthy person. You own the courts. And it's not what they know, it's who they know, right? They know all the judges. They know all the politicians. They know everyone, all the wealthy people, and they can rig it. And the poor person has no power whatsoever. You've rigged a system so they can't even fight you and they give up. And you get your way. The accusation of coercion and, and all these things happening, it's, it's ugh. And, and that happens even today, not what you know, it's who you know. It happens in politics. It happens at our jobs, right? It happens everywhere. It happens in college and high school and junior high and grade school. I, I know students who have said, oh, I know why she or he got that. It's because they know. And there's already this early skepticism about it's rigged. Even in grade school, you can hear them go, it's rigged. They wouldn't use that word, but that's what they're describing. They see it happen. You get the status or the connections from family name or because of money and buy their way through it. I mean, one of the reasons why the African-American community celebrated so much when O.J. Juan, O.J. Simpson Juan, which if you're younger, just go watch ESPN. They did a big thing on O.J., you're fine. But uh, O.J. Simpson won the battle, or, or won the court fight, right? And, you know, most of the African-American community thought he was guilty, but they celebrated the victory. Why? Because he won. He, he beat the system. He beat it. He used his money, and he, he beat the system. It was rigged all along, and he beat it. And that was the victory. I saw interview after interview of people just saying it was so just amazing for him to win that, to buy his way through. A person who's poor hardly ever beats the system. They just can't do it. That was accusation number three can't resist, can't fight. Number four is, literally, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person, and he does not resist you. Uh, they were killing people, and it wasn't by commission. As, as I study that or read that, it's by omission, by their lack of, by their withholding, by their not doing. It's the good that they did not do, and, and not doing the good ended up killing people, whether they would die in the fields, die on their way home from malnourishment or on their way back or whatever, through the slave-like conditions. These are Christians, and people were dying. It's a serious accusation. What, what does this look like for our responsibility as Christians? When you start to sit back and say, okay, wait a minute, strong indictment, God, what are you saying to me? Because it's so hard. How, how do you wrap your mind around the clothes that I'm wearing right now? I don't know if they've come from a sweatshop. I mean, you, do you know? I mean, we, we don't know where our food comes from most of the time. We don't know where our clothes come from most of the time, and it's almost impossible to find out. So what do, you, what do you do with that disconnect? And, and that's difficult. Like how do we, I, I get it's complex. I'm just saying I understand it's complex. And what then is our response though? 
If we're not committing and there's omission, how, how then do we live? Because would you buy anything then? Would you shop anywhere? You, you know, it gets, you start going down this road and where does that end and how do you do this? I don't know, it's complex. But we gotta have a response, right? There has to be something here that you can't say, well, none of this applies to us. Because no matter how you do the stats, no matter how we do the numbers, it always comes back to the idea that America is one of the most wealthiest nations in the world. Therefore, we are one of the most wealthiest people in the world sitting here even in this room. So this passage still applies to us. It's still us, the rich. And how do we respond? I want to show you a clip. It's uh, from the movie Amazing Grace. William Wilberforce, led by God to make a difference and to take a stand against slavery, pulls some wealthy people in, many of whom were Christians, and he pulls them onto a slave ship that had just come into port. And he wanted them to see This wasn't by commission, but this is by omission. He wanted them to see how their lifestyle was being supported by this. Let's play the clip. What's he doing up there? Ladies and gentlemen, this is a slave ship to Madagascar. It has just returned from the Indies, where it delivered 200 men, women, and children to Jamaica. When it left Africa, there were 600 on board. The rest died of disease or despair. That smell is the smell of death. Slow, painful death. Breathe it in. Breathe it deeply. Take those handkerchiefs away from your noses. There now. Remember that smell. Remember the Madagascar. Remember that God made men equal. Breathe it in. It's a powerful moment where he tells them, no, no, no. So quit trying to filter it. Quit trying to pretend it isn't as bad as it is. Stop and breathe it in. I think that's what God would have us first do, is to breathe in the injustice of when the wealthy hoard and are filled with greed and are self-indulgent and don't disperse, minister, pull people up in the name of Christ. To breathe in that. And to stop and go, wait a minute, it, it happens. This is Christians. It's happening in the early church. It's still happening today. It is. It's still happening today. I 
It was brilliant for him to pull them on a ship, pull them out of their safety, and pull them into a place they would never, ever go, had never, ever been. And all of a sudden, they're shocked by what they smell and hear and see. And it changes the course of history. And my question, I think God's question to us today is, when is the last time you have been in the context, given that we do have wealth, and that's a subjective statement, I get it, but given what God has blessed us with and the amount he's blessed us with, when is the last time we've ever gone into a context where we had to put the handkerchief up to our nose because it was so bad? Because when you get in those contexts, it changes how you look at wealth. It just does. And this isn't about slavery, and this isn't about an African-American and a white thing. This is about this broader context of what are we doing with our wealth and how God has given us our wealth, not just for ourselves. He's given us our wealth so he can use it to pull others out. So what are the contexts you're in? I mean, we have people who, have, who, are, who work with the garage, and they've gone down and they've seen the destruction in Wadsworth. This is Wadsworth, right? They've seen the destruction in homes in Wadsworth. Kids whose parents are both in jail, divorced, separated. They're, they're living on the street. They're living in cars. They're living with friends. They're, they're the rejects of society. I mean, that's what they talk about. Society doesn't want them. Society doesn't like them. And these, these people, even in our church, many of them are going down there to say, hey, wait a minute. I'm going to help. That, that's what this looks like. We may not be able to find the sweatshop in Indonesia or China, but God's leading us to these. And we say, Lord, I'll give my wealth, I'll give my time, I'll give who I know, I'll bring connections. That's what this looks like. Or APS. People going into inner city Akron and people who have seen the garbage dumps of abortion and, and Planned Parenthood and seen the devastation and all the stuff that can happen, they come in and with compassion and love help people try to put their pe- the life back together, piece their life back together, bring their wealth in and leverage it for the kingdom of God. Tertullian, a guy who lived back in the 8200s, famous church leader, he, he talked about this. He said, it's our care, these are Christians, it's our care for the helpless, our practice of loving kindness that brands us in the eyes of our opponents, meaning their reputation and their community was one where they cared for the helpless. They were these people that were so loving and kind, and they saw the injustice and moved into it. They brought their wealth to bear on where poverty was and what poverty looked like. And poverty is a big word, and, and it, can, it includes more than just money. And that's why wealth includes more than just money. Wealth can include who you know. I mean, that's part of it. You know the system. You know how the system works. We have some people that actually work with, uh, with uh, welfare over in Akron, we had another gal, she doesn't go to our church anymore, but does it up in Akron. You want to talk about getting together with somebody who knows the system. And I love hearing stories about how this gal knows the system and brings the wealth of knowledge and connections and pulls people up. And she does it in the name of Christ. That's what this looks like. (coughs) 
Fish. It's another organization in here in town that helps people that are just, they're living hand to mouth. How do we get them out of that cycle? Fish is another ministry we partner with. The Guatemala orphanage down there, connecting hearts. We've sent several missions trips down there, teams down there. We bring our wealth to bear, trying to pull kids out of poverty, give them an education so they can somehow break a generational cycle of poverty. That's what this is about. My question is, what are you doing with your wealth right now? When, when do you know enough's enough? When is it just time to stop? Some of you, I would encourage to get on a ship like the Madagascar. It will change you forever. You get in the middle of that kind of poverty and you come back and all of a sudden definitions of wealth change and you look around and you go, oh my, what do I do with this? And often guilt can come. You come back from those trips, you're like, you feel guilty because you have so much and you see, you know, you see how much we have, the luxury, and it all is just so clear. And, and, and I think God, what God would have us do is not be guilty for the wealth because who here can, can lay claim to who you were born to, right? No, nobody has any control of what family you're born to, what country you're born to. Nobody has any control over those things. And God often blesses us and, and the, the motivation for coming back and, and, and what we do with it is to say, okay, God, you've blessed me with it. Game on. Let's get this thing going. You don't have to feel guilty. You can say, praise the Lord, my heart's open. Let's use this wealth. How about it? There are some in our church that have said, after this income point, no more for us. We're just giving it away. Just said, no, I don't, we don't need any more than that. There's something to be said for that. I don't know where your heart is on this. Only the Holy Spirit does. All I know is this is probably one of the most scathing passages. It is the most scathing passage in James. It is written to the rich. And by all statistics, no matter what survey you take in the world, even if you count on cost of living, we are one of the most wealthiest people in the world. All of us. I mean, if you've been to Guinea... You, you think poverty in Cleveland is bad? Go to Guinea. You think poverty in Akron? I mean, they, we've got hospitals. We've got fire. We've got ambulance. We've got police. You go over there, one of the 10 most corrupt nations in the world, where do you start? Our poverty even looks rich, which is crazy. It's all subjective. It is and that's why it's so critical. It's not a man or a woman convicting you about this. It is so critical that it is the Holy Spirit. How are you managing the wealth he's given you? Is it all in clothes that the moths will eat? Is it in stuff that you think for sure will never be corrupted like gold and yet gold corrupts? 
corrodes? Or are we investing it in a future day? Keep depositing it, keep pouring heart, our hearts out, keep pouring our wealth out into the people that God sends our way. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that these days ahead, a message like this wouldn't bounce off our hearts and our minds, God, but it really would capture us. Lord, that all the subjectivity, uh, all the ways you could do this and dice it, and I, I pray, God, you would just cut through all of that. You would speak to us as a church, each individual, and you would find us to be people, Lord. I hear stories. There's so many people that are generous. This church is generous, but I pray our future is one of generosity. Our future is one where we don't hoard, but we give and we leverage our wealth for your kingdom. I pray that that would be the story of Freshwater. This is the story of Tertullian. We're known for caring for those who are uncared for and our loving kindness to them. Please do that work in our souls. It's just a spiritual work, Lord. Save us from the love of money. Save us from the love of wealth. Help us to tear those gods down and only worship you. Amen.